Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I am Kukasina Kubaha, a master's student of Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Hamburg and an alumni of the Nies Supra Research Residency Program. Today, I have the honor to be joined by Professor Praditi Palangsi and Professor Vincente Rafael, the editors of the Fresh Off the Press book of Archipelagos and Peninsulas, The Landscape of Translation in Southeast Asia, which is the first ever edited volume on translation in Southeast Asia. Professor Praditi Palangsi is an associate professor in translation studies at Jalalongkorn University. She is also co-vice president of the International Association for Translation and Intercultural Studies and has written extensively on translation history, orientalism, and literary translation. She is also a literary translator working with English, French, and Thai. While Professor Vincente Rafael is professor of history and Southeast Asian studies at the University of Washington, you might know him from his latest book, The Sovereign Trickster, Death and Laughter in the Age of Duterte, and he has also written several amazing books, all published with Duke University Press, such as Contracted Colonialism, The Promise of the Foreign and Marvelous Towns. And his research explores the relation between language and power, creolization, among other things. So very honored and starstruck to have both here, albeit virtually and across time zones, although that also fits into what we were talking about, the uncanny crisscrossing through time and geography so welcome, both of you. Thank you. Good, good to be here. Yeah, thank you. So first of all, I must say congratulations on the book. And I'm really excited to be holding the physical copy soon, which I heard it has just been released. Just the preface is really exciting. And, and I love how you use Southeast Asia as a concept to challenge what we think of as translation while also mapping out the region's history of translation. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit of how and why did you come up with the idea and why did you both become interested in studying translations in the first place? I think I'll have a go first and I think Professor Raphael can join in later. Actually, this has been my interest for a long time. As you know, in from Southeast Asia, there hasn't been that many books or works on translations in translation studies or a dedicated project to the issue of translation in Southeast Asia. And I can fairly say that Professor Raphael works. Many of his books may be the only project dedicated to translation and the Philippines. And this is the closest we have so far in the national academic communities. So I think that it's the right time to have this kind of project coming out. And it's also come from my personal experience as well. I wrote about this in my acknowledgement in the, the book that whenever I went to a conference in translation, there hasn't been that many presentations on Southeast Asia and translation. Even there is one. I don't think that 
that particular partner would attract so many audience. That there wasn't so much attention from the academic communities when it comes to Southeast Asia. So I think that we perhaps need to do something about it. And I think there's at that time I was optimistic that there must be enough people who share the same interests and wish to join us. So I came up with the idea that we should have this workshop on translation in Southeast Asia. But on which particular aspect, that was a tricky one. But then I remember going to the Asia Translation Tradition Conference in Manila. I suddenly, I heard some of the speakers who told us about their concept or ideas or experience of translation, especially from those in the, what we call the archipelagic nations, Indonesia and the Philippines. And it's just like eye-opening experience for me because they thought of translation so differently from us, from, you know, the Thai people who stay mainly on the mainland. And I was like, there should be something written about it. One of the things that I found was that the idea of border between languages for those who live in the archipelago are totally different from us, especially like people from the Philippines. They're like coast switches all the time and they feel so casual and natural about, you know, coast switching. So, you know, the way they switch between languages mm-hmm. is so seamless. And this is so different from Thailand because if you switch between languages, then you will be accused of trying to sound really posh to show off that you know so many languages. And if you use foreign words in the Thai, and then you will be regarded as someone who's not nationalistic enough. So <laughs> that's why the idea of the... um space border come in and i think that the idea of space is pretty clear to me that we can use that as the starting point as something that southeast asian translation scholars can contribute their ideas on these particular issues it's very interesting to listen to pray compare the difference between translation practices in the archipelago versus especially the Philippines versus peninsula, especially in this case, Thailand. I think in both cases, language and nationalism, the connection are very important. And the way in which nationalism gets articulated in one place in large part helps to determine the kind of translative practices or practices of translation in another place. And I think she's absolutely right. In the case of the Philippines, I mean, there's this sense in which there is no one language. Instead, what you have is a, a sort of practice of moving between, you know, several languages, or in this case, the vernacular in English, or one vernacular and another vernacular, and so forth. So there's a sense in which translation is much more fluent and much more adaptive in the archipelago as compared to in the case of Thailand. And uh, it is an interesting question that we tried to pursue in this book, which is why is that so? Why is there this geolinguistic difference, if you will, right? What accounts for it? There are certainly different histories at play. There are different sociologies at play. And we wanted to explore that, hence the Bangkok workshop, which we did in, was it 2019? Yeah. And that was a very, very interesting workshop we did. There were a bunch of papers that didn't make it to the volume, but the papers that did, I think, were the ones that directly spoke to this sort of very curious trans-regional phenomenon. So I hope people who buy the book and who read the book will pick up on that. The concept of landscape and translation and cartography is really present in the book as well with like the really interesting maps you included. So I wondered... Where did you find all those maps and 
Could you talk a little bit more about translation and translating borders onto a map? I think we take the concept of mapping rather metaphorically, so it's quite flexible the way we use it. The idea of mapping actually is translation core because you have to translate space into something that you know you can represent it in so many scenarios, like in geography, in linguistic, or in you know in other cultural areas that you want to pursue. So the idea of mapping that I think other not not just in my chapter but other contributors use therefore has this kind of metaphorical value to it. For example, in Professor Cherry Yamada's chapter, she used the idea of mapping in the sense of making visible the unwritten history of translation in Cambodia, which is actually quite difficult to articulate because there wasn't so many works written in this area and. You cannot obtain the material so easily, and then she managed to identify um, interesting strands of translation coming from the colonial era and Cambodian emerging attempt to translate in the more globalized world. And I think that's one idea of mapping. And in my understanding of using math and translation, I found it interesting that there is this logic that control our understanding of how we locate things. One of the questions that I raise in the book is that Southeast Asia is subjected to what David Emerson called the logic of compass, which means that Southeast Asia is always south of something. In this case, south of China and east of India. Whereas other Asian region, they are either South Asia, East Asia, and so on. But we are Southeast Asia. It is doubly located mm-hmm. in relations to other regions. It is defined in relation as a sub-regions to other more established regions in the eyes of the West. Mm-hmm. So the idea of Southeast Asia, if we follow the logic of compass, is something that is defined by its adjacency or its location to something else. So mm-hmm. in a way, Southeast Asia is a translation of somewhere else. It is never its own self in the first mm-hmm. place. So it tells us something about Southeast Asia is always a belated entity, a translation of somewhere else. In the sense of the map, I try to look up at other maps about Southeast Asia as well, and it's appearing in the books. As you can see, there's a map of Asia in the form of a Pegasus, and it is interesting that Southeast Asia in the Pegasus map occupying the high lake region and the tails, which is considered the insignificant part of the animal. <laughs> you know, it's not a wing or a head or some you know the part that are more important. So this is actually kind of give us the sense of deliberativeness of Southeast Asia, and I think that is something that we could play on, something that scholars can come in and contribute or give their thoughts on this idea of Southeast Asia as as a translation, as a belated entity, as I said, and in the same way, it's the reversal of the sense of place and space of time as well, and this is already a significant idea of translation that. Should be explored more. Just to follow up quickly on that, to go back to this idea of maps and mapping. You know, maps are essentially uh, ways of representing knowledge. Right, is a connection, a deep connection between mapping and cognition. And uh, the idea of maps as representations or tools of knowledge has some bearing on traditional notion of translation. 
Now, the traditional notion of translation is, again, translation as a tool of cognition, as a way of gaining access to something is by way of translation. But, you know, one of the things that underlies, and hopefully, and I think recently in this, one of the things that we think about, at least one of the ways in which we could consider translation is the other way around. Rather, translation comes before that which is being translated. There is a way in which you could argue that there is no original as such, except in and through translation. So there is no map as such, or there is no land as such, except in and through its process of cognitive mapping. And so there's a way in which you could sort of connect that to the derivative position or the secondary position of Southeast Asia. You know, Southeast Asia as somehow geopolitical afterthought, as Prey was saying. And of course, the term Southeast Asia itself emerged only during World War II as a, as a way of mapping a particular strategic terrain that British and the Americans were moving into in their war against the Japanese. So there's always a sense in which the term is, number one, uncertain. Because derivative, its borders unclear. Are they Indianized? Are they Islamized? Are they Christianized? It's quite uncertain. Number two, there's a sense also in which Southeast Asia is always an embattled region and originating from war, unsettled borders. Even as we speak today, much of Southeast Asia is under a shroud of conflict, if not actual war. So Rather than see this as a disadvantage, or rather than see this as a, as a negative, I think one of the things that the authors in the book have done is to turn it around and see it as an enabling condition for talking about the region, right? The fact that the region exists in a way that is always in motion and therefore provides an insight or a perspective from which to see other regions in the world, from which to unsettle other places in the world. And translation, of course, plays an extremely important part in that process of unsettling because it helps us to move. That is the other sort of meaning of translation is that it allows us to transport, to move from one place to another. As they used to say, move the bones of the saints from one cemetery to another, that this is a practice known as translation, right? You translate things from one spot to another. So again, I think this is one of the attempts or one of the contributions of the book is to shed light on this process of movement, movement from one national formation to another, from one colonial history to another. Right. I also like how you try to explore the Latin roots of translation, rather propose the word traverse rather than transfero, which has the connotation of violence within it too. So the chapters in the book also talk about waters being a free-flowing border that is to an advantage rather than disadvantage. But I also was thinking back on to Professor Prez's work in her PhD thesis on virtuality of how there's this violence of portraying another being as if it's the true reality. What does this mean to translation when someone else from outside the region translates you and from within the region translates the other beings as well? My idea of virtuality, actually, I try to follow up on what Edward Said wrote about translation. I found that in, in his book, Orientalism, he mentioned translation only in a few words. He referred to a lot of translation made by Western uh, Orientalists, um, Sinologists, Arabists, and so on. But the thing is, he hardly conceptualized his idea of translation in his book. 
the paragraph that I found about him trying to theorize translation was that he mentioned that by using, I think this Robert Merton's idea of inside and outside, it's like the West tried to understand the East only as an outsider. They Even though the way they wrote about the Orient is by trying to internally grasping their reality, but their position has to be as an outsider, no matter how close they claim to understand the Orient. So my idea of virtuality is that, so how do we call this relationship? If you cannot be part of the things that you are trying to write about, or if you cannot totally side it with something that you claim to care about so much, because retaining the position of the outsiders means keep maintaining the privilege of the West, then that's important for the Orientalists too. So how do we call this relationship? So I, I come up with the idea of virtuality because it's like the Orientalists, by translating, they also virtualize the other to uh, make the other a legitimate representation of the thing that they, they study and also in turn justify their position in you know studying the other. So the idea of virtuality is that you create something that you don't actually be part of it you remain an outsider's position while trying to create another reality that is legitimate, that is authentic enough to be to replace the original. In that sense, my idea of Burshati also has something to do with this current project of peninsulas and archipelagos because it means that I pursue my interest in the idea of representation, which doesn't have to be a one-way or unidirectional representation. And I think I talk about this extensively in my chapter, that in the way that we use translation to represent something has always mostly been metaphorized as, you know, being a one-directional thing. As you can see in the etymology of translation itself, trans and pharaoh means to carry across. You carry something across the border, but you doesn't change it. And this is how the idea of faithfulness equivalence comes in. And, and this concept is very important in the West. The way they conceptualize or theorize translation has based on this idea of translation being something of a transfer. Even though you change languages, the meaning somehow has to remain the same. So our book and the idea of uh, that we propose in our book uh, try to challenge this predominant metaphor of translation, that translation is more complex than that. And I think other books say something about this too. But the thing is, the way we did this has a lot more to do with problematizing the borders as well as the order of how things appear using the Southeast Asia as a starting point. So the idea of representing others here, I can say for my chapter, especially the concept that I use, which is the, the idea of the antipodes or the antipodean translation that I use in my chapter, also address this problem of distance, of the gap, of the position, of the idea of the relationship between two entities and so on, with a seemingly tangible distance that is almost impossible to overcome. So the idea of the antipodes that I use is quite similar in the concept of virtuality that I used before, in the sense that the antipodes, if you look at the term, it suggests two locations that is at the opposite end of the world. So if I say I'm in Thailand, the antipode of Thailand is in Latin America, and to be more precise, I think it's in Peru. So my idea of 
Antipodean translation is like this. It doesn't have to be a kind of transfer through a border so that you can reach the adjacent other. But translation has more way to travel around the world than that, even though it's an impossible distance that is suggested in the idea of the antipodes. So that's why I use quite a lot of examples that problematize the concept, the idea of distance, the idea of physical locations, and how translation allow you to think of the way to reach the other, but not through the usual routes. I was also thinking of how we within the region come to access other beings within the region through English, which is also something that Professor Rafael has written about and thought about of mm. how English has become a currency and ASEAN's official language is also English. So whether this representation of others, there's some sort of advantages or disadvantages to using English or not. I think in this case, I mean, the way I understand the way English works today in the region is it's precisely the opposite of the sort of antipodian translation that Prayer is talking about. You know, I mean, why is English so popular? It's precisely because the desire to get a translation as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And this idea of efficiency, the dream of an efficient translation of translation where there are no gaps where things happen instantaneously, like Google Translate, for example, you know, it's a quintessential example, is all, of course, uh, in the interest of making systems work, making organizations work, and ultimately accumulating profit. You know, it always operates under the sign of capital. English operates in the region under the sign of capital. Why else would you want to learn English? Well, it's because it helps you get a good job. It helps you navigate bureaucracies and so forth and so on all of which enables you to accumulate both economic as well as social capital. And we probably should have included that essay in this book. <laughs> yeah, the, the role of English, yeah. Yeah. As the, yeah, yeah. Uh, translation. Yeah. yeah, but it would have been the opposite of the Antipodian. And so in that sense, it reiterates the kind of Orientalism that Said talks about, right? Whereas I think Prez was arguing for a way of either evading or resisting that kind of Orientalist translation. The fetish of English today is precisely a way of reinstituting, you know, a certain kind of Orientalist language. It's this idea that, oh, if you're from the West, you don't speak Thai, you don't speak Vietnamese, that's okay. You can just go there because everybody will speak English or would have in the future, already spoken English, which would make your presence, both your presence and your job and whatever, that much easier, right? So again, English is a way of, as I said, trying to recuperate a certain kind of colonial relationship with the region. And of course, it never works because English doesn't operate smoothly. There's always roadblocks, if you will. There's always emendations, misappropriations, creolizations, all sorts of inventive reinventions of English as we all know in the region. And there's a way in which, you know, in places like the Philippines, for example, English has been absorbed by the vernacular. So instead of English allowing for this efficient, smooth workings of certain capitalist enterprises or certain colonialist enterprises, English is sort of turned around against its original speakers, and which are confronted with this, you know, as I said, a sort of creolized productions that, in my opinion, actually enrich rather than simply suppress local productions. 
And I think what, what Professor Raphael said made me think about our recent movement that has become bigger, which I see as a, what we call a pan-Asianism. Asian people nowadays has began to consume Asian cultural products more than before. We become more interested in ourselves somehow. But the thing is, English is always there. It's like a mediating factors. And if we look at the multi-alliance movement against the CCP, you know, mainland China, and which occur as an accident, I won't go into details about it because it's, it's, it, it, you need a lot of background on it. But the thing is, the social media, all the technologies involved, especially translate button that you have to push you know, on a Twitter's tweet, it becomes very important. You can see in the Twitter's war against the CCP, we, can, we see the netizens from time one from the CCP, I mean mainland China and Hong Kong and Thailand somehow joined force without knowing each other's languages, but somehow they could communicate through that translate button and the fight become really fierce and somehow very bonding at the same time. They found solace in one another, <laughs> like their company against the mainland China and they find like a sense of alliance among others. And even though the thing is, what fascinated me is that they, they didn't know each other language that much. They The bonding is formed through that translate button in Twitters. And the, sometimes they use English as well. As you can predict, it's broken English. Still, they, they could manage to understand each other and, and find something, you know, very common in their experience against totalitarianism, which is something very impressive to think about translation, especially when technology is involved and the idea of English, even though it's not perfect, somehow can keep this going forward. Reminds me of the chapter in the book as well with protest poetry in the Philippines. English has been creolized through code switching, the puns that you can use. Yeah, you could easily see how translation can furnish the means for forging solidarities of all sorts. And it's a kind of solidarity that eventually finds its own lingua franca, where English is just one stream, but there are others operating in between. And so I think the way in which, and again, this is another aspect of, you know, what we've been calling the geolinguistics of the area is that as much as translation can reinforce boundaries, it can also find ways around them. We've been talking about translation, but I wonder what are both of yours favorite translator from Southeast Asia? <laughs> Well, I have to say it's Kunmui Hupoksagun, who is also my colleague. She had her first degree from Harvard, I think, and then she worked as a um, lawyer for a long time. And then she just left that all behind, you know, high paying job and so on to become a translator, translating Thai novels into English. And we invited, well, we still invite her to teach literary translation at Adula. She's not just translating, but she's also forming a group that encourage emerging translators who wish to translate Southeast Asian work into English. And also her works is actually sort of set a benchmark for other translators to follow if you want to translate out 
of you know tie into other foreign languages because you're you're not using your mother tongue you're using your second language she set a lot of standard for it even though her works are still under 10 books but the thing is it's already made an impact the way she's tried to set the tone for how thai novel thai literature could sound in english it was quite hard for me to figure out what should be the tone for Thai if you're going to write about Thai characters, Thai conversation in English. Because there's, there's a lot, a huge difference between English and Thai. And to set the balance, to make it sound intelligible as well as tasteful, is already difficult. And if we are going to teach the next generation of translators, is this, they are required to read her works. That's wonderful. I will put that on my reading list now. What about you, Professor Rapel? I can think of two. One is Jose Rizal, who was an incredible linguist. He was, you know, numerous languages. And one of the things that he translated that, you know, is very interesting is he translated five fairy tales by Hans Christian Andersen from German. And these were these were already, and he was quite fluent in German. And he he translated these five fairy tales and sent them as Christmas gifts to his nephews and nieces in the Philippines. And he translated them into Tagalog, by the way, not Spanish. And so I think it was kind of interesting that he was doing that. But he also was very interested in translating different languages. In fact, one of the last projects he worked on while he was in exile was a multilingual dictionary that would include Spanish, English, German, French, Arabic, Japanese. <laughs> yeah, God only knows how many languages. So he's always had that fascination with language throughout his work. The second person that I sort of learned a great deal from was one of my mentors, of course, Benedict Anderson. Benedict Anderson uh, had always been interested in translation. And one of the things he often did was to translate what he felt was important and emerging literatures from different Southeast Asian regions. He has all these wonderful very intricate translations of Pramudia that he did, as well as offering to write prefaces and introductions to uh, translations of newly emergent authors in Indonesian. So these are folks who's work in translation insofar as they connected them with the larger issue of language and power. These are people that I, I really look up to and that I, I've learned a great deal from. Thank you very much. As a leaving note, perhaps, is there any upcoming projects from both of you that we can look forward to? I, I wish. I wish. <laughs> Maybe we should have part two of the Bangkok <laughs> workshop. You know? Oh, oh follow-up. Yeah, we will organize a book launch for this one for sure, but it should be sometime in August or yeah, where we can get people to come to the actual venue and try to get physical, <laughs> like talking to us really. Uh, it would be nice rather than doing it online, but people outside Bangkok can zoom in and, and give us um, their thoughts about the books. And apart from the book launch, I just talked to one of the estates, the daughter of, of a prominent Thai writer yesterday about the chance to translate her father's work because he passed away very recently and they were very happy to, to let me do it so that will be my next project to translate a novel into English and I think that should be a starting point for other projects to come because my interest now is to try to promote translation of Thai literature into English and as well as 
are forming a network with other Southeast Asian literary agents, publishers, writers, translators. So starting from the book this year and next project, I think there will be more on the forming translation network, especially literary translation in Southeast Asia. So that is what I look forward to. And yes, and Professor Rappel, you could be involved. Yeah. No, I, I'm very happy to be part of this, you know, because the question of literary translation is an ongoing interest of mine. And there's so much of it going on everywhere, I think, in Southeast Asia right now, as more and more Southeast Asian writers are beginning to make a mark on the global market. The, the interest of large, you know, and as you know, there is now a Penguin Southeast Asia division that's, the, you know, beginning to encourage more and more Southeast Asian writers to publish for the global market. On the one hand, that's great. They're getting recognition and they're getting paid for their efforts, which is wonderful. They actually start are able to make a living now from being writers. On the other hand, the downside of that, of course, is they are forced to sort of shape their writing to suit a particular global audience. And so a, a lot of perhaps what made their writing interesting and, and specific to the region gets lost in the process. I always thought that there was a danger of things getting more and more homogenized, right? So that's always the downside of of something like that. but Yeah, there's, there's a risk of homogenizing. As you said, I can see that there are books that would be really hard to find proper audience because it's too specific. Mm -hmm. But if the book fit the genre of something more recognizable in world literature, like class struggles or battles for social changes and so on, I think it has more chance to get translated. I, I call it the Netflix effect. You know, <laughs> because Netflix, is, Netflix and, and word literature, so kind of interesting connection, right? Because you see, yeah. and, and then the work of translation will be the work of subtitling. Right. And with translation getting more prominent, hopefully translators would also be named more often as well. And people value For sure. translation. For sure. So hopefully we have to say thank you for this podcast. And um, hopefully you, if people listen to our talk and, and found it interesting, they can get a copy as well. Yes. And of course, the link to the book will be included in the show notes. Thank you both, Professor Pran, Professor Rappel, for today, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you, Kukasina. It's a, it's, a, it's a pleasure talking to you. This was Kukasina Kobaha in conversation with Pradipi Plangsi and Vincente Rappel on their new edited volume of Peninsulas and Archipelagos, The Landscape of Translation in Southeast Asia. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.